Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special webinar brought to you by the Rams Committee at, uh, at Albuquerque. Not really, it's just that that's where I'm at. So show of hands, anyone at Rams as I speak? Or are we all busy back at our own lives? Huh. Not one. Cool, all right. So... What is why Bayes analysis? Now, to be to be clear, um, this I, I don't often like doing webinars where there's a little little bit of, of um, uh, sort of assumed knowledge, um, and there is going to be just a tiny little flavour of assumed knowledge for why Bayes analysis, analysis, and that is you do have to have. Well, sorry, it would be helpful if you had some idea of what Weibull analysis is, and we're not going to. Uh, for those of you who haven't touched Weibull analysis in the past, don't worry. We, we will go um, through what it, what Weibull analysis is basically. Um, but uh, there are certainly lots of other webinars, including or and, and sorry, uh, lots of other resources, including webinars on what Weibull analysis is, and it'd be really useful for you to, uh, if you don't know much about Weibull analysis, go and have a look at some of those resources to help you understand because. Why Bayes analysis is very, uh, very closely related to Weibull analysis. In this webinar, you know, sort of learn out what, learn about why that is and how that could help us do stuff. Now, the guidebook you have a link to will include more of a breakdown on this thing called the Weibull distribution. The Weibull distribution has a particular parameter called the beta parameter. Um, we also refer to that as the shape parameter. And that is a very, very useful parameter indeed. Now, what is probability distribution? A probability distribution essentially gives us a function or something similar to help us understand um, the likelihood of random variables assuming certain values. Now, in the world of reliability uh, in engineering, those probability distributions are often used for us to help understand uh, the likely values of time to failure of a product, where the time to failure is the random variable. And the Weibull distribution is one of the more popular uh, uh, probability distributions out there for a really good reason. It's from what's called the family of extreme value distributions, and in a very, very high level way of explaining what those extreme value distributions are, is that imagine you walked around town and you randomly chose groups of 10 people and you found the tallest person each in each group and measured the height of that tallest person and the height of the tallest person in each group of 10 people then became the random variable that you're interested in. And you can see that that is a form of um, uh, of extreme values. You, you get a group of things and you're interested in either the largest of those things or the smallest of those things and the smallest or largest of those things within its different groups, it then becomes a random variable which we call an extreme value and a viable distribution is, an, is a, from that family. So why am I torturing you with that seemingly uh, rabbit hole? Uh, rabbit hole, seeming, rabbit, seeming rabbit hole that we're going down in regard to the Weibull distribution was well, because that many natural processes are in a way extreme value processes. If you think about something breaking under stress, your component will fail once the last molecules or what last covalent bonds between adjacent molecules breaks after all the other ones have broken. So in a way, that is an extreme, uh, extreme value. Another way of looking at it is um, if you have lots of things where you uh, where your thing will fail when any one of those things fail, well, your system is going to fail when the, uh, uh, the smallest time to fire of one of its constituents elements. So we've just found that the Weibull distribution does a remarkably good job of describing or modeling uh, uh, way things fail because it just so happens this extreme value uh, property of the Weibull distribution is is essentially mimicked in the real world. So 
the why having tortured you with that and as, as Fred's put in the in the chat window I can see there's links to other stuff as well uh, that can help you take uh, take you to the uh, um, uh, take you to, to to some more resources see Carl's getting way ahead of myself in terms of talking about how YBase can help uh, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But uh, let's just focus right now on the shape perimeter for the Weibull distribution because it's very, very important. If the shape perimeter for the Weibull distribution is less than one, does anyone know what that implies for your product? Anyone want to share in the chat window? Anyone want to have, have a guess at what, if you have something whose time to, time to failure is modeled by a Weibull distribution, and the shape parameter of that Weibull distribution is less than one, as Dan uh, indicates, it means failure rate is decreasing with time. So you have a, a early life failures. Well done. Everyone is talking about what we call wearing. And we see this when we have products which have pre-existing damage. Why that, uh, why, that, uh, why that is the case is because the longer something seems to be working, um, it implies that that product is less likely to still have a defect. So in a way, uh, operating a defect-ridden population of things is almost like screening. When things fail, they fail to, uh, they, and they're failing due to wear it. It means that they're failing due to pre-existing defects or problems, which means that those that are left are less likely to have defects. I'm not entirely sure what uh, you're referring to with uh, regarding to instability and processes, uh, Diana. If there's anything that um, you want to add to explain that, uh, you, you might be onto something. It's just that uh, needs a couple of more words for context for me to, to for, for it to click from at my end. Um, but well done for those people who understand that a, a shape parameter less than one implies wear in or a decreasing failure rate, and if the shape parameter is greater, greater than one, what does that mean? Anyone? Anyone want to have it? Has it a guess at what? Wear out. Well done. Things are wearing out. That implies that we are accumulating damage. So as opposed to wear in, where there's, in a way, almost uh, damage exists in products at the start of their operational life, um, the cure wear out implies that you are accumulating damage. Your tire tread is wearing away. That fatigue crack is growing. Your, uh, there is diffusion uh, in your electronic components. And so straight away, the shape parameter of the Weibull distribution, if we find the right Weibull distribution for time to failure for your product, can very quickly tell us if your thing is wearing in or wearing out. That is just the start. For example, we might know what the shape parameter is for a particular product before we do any data analysis or testing. And that allows us to incorporate information before we have to sort of gather lots of data to try and then learn it. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, textbooks insist that you look at data as if you've not learned nothing previously. And then from that data, you find the right shape parameter, but don't have any pre-existing or preconceived ideas about what it is, that's subjectivity. And we hate that in this sort of very technical scientific world. Okay, so but let's look at a ball bearing. This is a very common refrain in my, uh, in my webinars and my courses, the ball bearing. And the ball bearing, every product, if it's modeled by a Weibull distribution, and we know the Weibull distribution does a pretty good job of modeling lots of things that fail. Uh, so if we have a... Weibull distribution, which describes the time to fire of our ball bearing, it will have a particular shape parameter. And that is something that can be very, very useful. So here is my random hand of failure with all these blue data points representing the times to failure of a specific ball bearing. And in this case, we have lots of blue data points, which means we test lots of ball bearings. And so we have already a lot of information on our uh, on this horizontal um, uh, arrow. So what can we do with this information? Well, we know that if we were to get or test enough ball bearings, we would be able to create a probability density curve, this orange shape here, 
and whose shape um, whose shape indicates or represents the, the likelihood or the density of those data points along the horizontal axis. You can see where the uh, the uh, the probability density curve is the highest. The density of those blue data points, those times to failure, is also the highest. And when the, when the density curve becomes very, very low, you can see the density of those of those uh, data points correspondingly decreases. So you're much more likely to see your ball bearing fail at or around the point where your probability density curve is the highest. And so because something's random doesn't mean it's not predictable. So a thing like a ball bearing will have a probability density curve like this. And if you test tens of thousands of ball bearings, you might be able to get a pretty good guess what this probability density, probability density curve is. And you can see that this probability density curve has what we call a right or positive skew. It has, it, some people say it's skewed to the right, and some people say it's right-tailed. It seems like it's a, as if someone is pinching this probability density curve and pulling it to the right along the horizontal arrow you can see there. And so why am I talking about the shape of the probability density curve? It's because it's almost like a, symptom or a fingerprint of how a ball bearing fails. And if you understand the, the fingerprint of how a ball bearing fails, what that allows you to do is make lots of really useful decisions. And in some cases, make a lot of uh, better, uh, better decisions about what to do with your products. Now, for those of you who have trudged through some of my previous webinars and lessons, you'll recognize what I have on the right-hand side of the screen right now, right? I have a gauge, a gauge which is uh, with a little yellow uh, marker. You can see the ball bearing right there. And this gauge is a way of visualizing or indicating the extent to which a product wears in versus the extent to which a product wears out. And you can see that um, wear in is at the bottom of this gauge where the, the gauge turns blue and wear out is at the top of this gauge where the gauge turns red. And you can see that the ball bearing with this little yellow marker is just in the wear out region of, uh, of this gauge. And so this gauge is gonna be very, very useful to, um, uh, to help us visualize or understand the extent to which something wears in or wears out. Now, for those of you who are veterans of previous webinars I've delivered, um, just a bit of revision. Can anyone remember what characteristic of the probability density curve exists for all products that wear out? What visual characteristic about the shape of a probability density curve exists? Or about the orange curve on the left. If it has this property, you know that your thing is wearing out. Anyone remember? Anyone at all? Not, not uh, Sebastian is skewed to the right, but that's not the telltale signature of something that wears out. It's, it's something else. For example, a bell curve describes the time to failure of um uh, of, of a tire. Bell curve doesn't skew to the right. If failure rate is increasing, that that's that's uh, the premise of the question. If something is wearing out, i.e., it has a a, a uh, an increasing failure rate. Yep, why will beta is greater than one, but what characteristic of the probability density curve, what, what is it about its shape that, if you just look at the shape of the curve, not quite. Fred got it, it's peaked. So you can see this curve here. Um, it's not a bell curve, but it's like the bell curve in that it has a peak. It has a little mountain on the left-hand side. Every time you see a peaked probability density curve, you know that statistically, you will statistically demonstrate that your thing is wearing out. And this certainly is a case for our ball bearing. So, oh, I got ahead of myself. So what we're gonna do now is morph or change this probability density curve from one that is slightly wearing out to one that is wearing in. This is where you'll see probability density curve change remarkably. As we move down our gauge, you can see the probability density curve becomes something very alien to our conscious 
brain's interpretation of random, you can see this orange curve now hugs the vertical axis. It doesn't have a peak anymore. Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, going up the vertical axis. And in this case, you could argue that the peak is on the vertical axis itself, but in the way, way you need to look for the peak of a probability density curve to try and identify where out is to see essentially the curve go up and then go down. This is straight up and then it hugs a vertical axis and it sort of creates this weird shape. This is what we're in looks like. You can see you've got the lots of those early failures at the left. The mean time to failure hasn't changed just for reference. Uh, you can see all those early failures right there. Um, and this is indicative of something like a small satellite. So that's small satellites all, always fail due to wear in very sensitive components. These components are manufactured for um, not for space applications, usually mobile phones and everything else, and it gets launched into space. And each satellite is usually different, so you don't have huge production runs where you can leverage um, uh, le leverage mass production. And of course, people building them tend to be more rocket scientisty versus manufacturing e. Yes, pretty certain those are real words. And so it's not a, it's not unexpected to see small satellites fail due to infant mortality or wear in, which is certainly uh, what multiple studies have found over the years. Small satellites uh, always fail due to wear in. So you can see the small satellite on this gauge is now represented by that little yellow dot or yellow yellow marker right down at the bottom. Now you can see that we've already left a grey arrow. A little bit above to to remind us where the ball bearing was on this scale so we can go back to that ball bearing and see now the ball bearing exists on that scale or gauge we can keep moving up to examine different components so for example a roller bearing has it has a slightly different uh, probability density curve shape and it, it appears to sort of be uh, a more advanced version of wear out and the difference between a ball bearing and a roller bearing is that a roller bearing, instead of using balls, uses more cylindrically shaped uh, things to uh, to support the inner ice and the outer ice. And the reason we sometimes prefer cylinders as opposed to balls is cylinders have more contact area um, with the things that are touching. Balls, in a way, only have a, a single point, whereas a cylinder can have a, a long line. And the reason you might want to do that is because you're having much more extreme forces on your on your um on your shaft that you're supporting. However, roller bearings aren't quite as good at ball, as ball bearings are at sort of um, resisting thrusting forces that would want to push the inner race out of the outer race. And so roller bearings fail in a slightly different way because they are different, different components. Then we have things like turbo pumps, which have a slightly different uh, failure characteristic. And so you can see marker is moving up this gauge of wear out. Tires fail with a in a way where you have this sort of very uh, symmetrical bell-shaped curve. And that's, so you can see here, this is another case of wear out. See, it's got a peak. It's definitely not, doesn't have a right tail or a right skew. Uh, it all comes down to the peak. And as we keep moving up, we can uh, we, we can go to, for example, a compressor vein, which has got a different shape again. And you can see every single one of these things has a corresponding um uh, place on this little gauge on the right-hand side. And so what this means is that maybe we might have some idea about where these where these uh, markers sit as we move through the um, uh, as we as we move through our library of components we have information about. And so this is really, really useful information. What it allows us to do is to sort of, understand the characteristics of things that are wearing in or things that are wearing out. Now, what is actually happening here is each different mark or each different place on this gauge is or has a corresponding beta or shape parameter value. You can see them coming in right now. So you can see that, for example, the small satellite that weighs in has a typical shape parameter about 0 0.4, the ball bearing 1.5. Roller bearing 2.0, turbo pump 2.7, tire 3.5, compressor vein 6.0. So you can see we have the five components at the top, um, or five parts, systems, component, whatever you want to call them. They have beta or shape parameters greater than one. They all have peaks in the probability density curve. So you can see that uh, they exist 
really the wear out part of this gauge and the small satellite which wears in it's right down the bottom with a beta shape parameter that's lesson one and so now we're starting to generate experience or knowledge about how things fail and each one of these beta shape parameters is potentially going to contain some information to help us make better decisions so that being said, how do we incorporate these numbers into analysis? Well, before we do that, we just need to make sure we know that these things over here have dominant failure mechanisms. Uh, the wobble distributions are great at modeling single failure mechanisms. So for example, if you have a system which has 6,000 parts, you'll have some components that wear in, some components that wear out. You might not have a dominant failure mechanism for a very complex system. But with these components here, we have found through experience, they tend to have a single or a small group of dominant failure mechanisms, which means it makes it very easy for us to find the right Weibull distribution and therefore right shape parameter for those, uh, for those particular components or systems. And so that's something to keep in the back of your mind when we're talking about using any pre-existing knowledge about how things fail, is that you need to be aware that they, it only happens when you have a dominant failure mechanism. So what is a failure mechanism? A failure mechanism is a physical, chemical, electrical, thermal, or other process which results in failure. It's essentially how your thing breaks. And so things, uh, examples include things like tin whiskers, which are these tiny little things going from one tin plated terminal of an electromagnetic relay to another. Uh, things like dendritic growth, you can see those little lightning shaped dendrites from the cathode moving across to an anode in an electronic component. Essentially the cathode and the anode isn't we often use those terms in batteries, but in this case, it's where the electric potential dictates uh, which conductor becomes a cathode, which conductor becomes an anode. Uh, another example of a failure mechanism is corrosion. Another example of a failure mechanism is fatigue. And you can see now that crack is slowly growing as it's repeated, it's subjected to repeated cyclic stresses. So those are failure mechanisms. Now, when we're talking about um, uh, our ball bearing in particular, and we know that, for example, we, always, we let's just say we might have some idea that this ball bearing has a shape parameter of about 1.5. How do we use that information to make better decisions? Well, let's just say that we only have three data points for a particular ball bearing and we have, for whatever reason, some idea that its shape perimeter is around about 1.5. So three data points is not a lot. It's a very small number of data points. Um, and where you should get excited about why uh, uh, having some idea about the shape perimeter is that every time you introduce information into data analysis, you are reducing uncertainty. So if you're able to somehow squeeze into analysis some pre-existing knowledge about the shape, likely shape parameter of a ball bearing, then the fact that you only have three data points might be mitigated by that pre-existing information. Now, what that means is if that we were to create a Y-ball plot, these three data points, you can see this creates some sort of trend, or, or perhaps you can put in a line of best fit. You can, but it's still, it's not a lot of data. Now, for those of you who have never heard of Weibull, Weibull analysis before, a Weibull plot is a very special skewed um, chart. The vertical axis is the CDF, or the likely probability of failure. The horizontal axis is time to failure in a logarithmic scale. I can't go into Weibull plotting in too much detail in, uh, in, in this in this webinar. There's plenty, like I said, there's plenty of other resources in Ascendo or Shendo, Sendo, that uh, can can uh, can help you understand what Weibull plotting is all about. But this is uh, we like Weibull plotting because when if some if data points are described by a Weibull distribution, those data points will tend to create a straight line on this really interesting looking chart. You can see that the for example the middle point is right on a red line which corresponds to a failure probability of fifty percent, as you would expect for the middle data point. 
And maybe you can see that these blue data points are creating some sort of line. Uh, they look relatively straight, so that's encouraging. But realistically, you'd be struggling to make too many meaningful calls based on three data points alone. And so if we were to have tested a lot of ball bearings we did, and the ball bearings were, were modeled by a, a particular Weibull distribution, you'd be able to, with more confidence, have a line of best fit. And that line of best fit, if you have a single dominant fire mechanism, will tend to have a, uh, a, a signature slope the way we've talked about previously um, for, uh, 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 for things that example wear out now just for the those people who who are who are looking at these data points and saying hang on those data points don't look very very straight this is 100 data points in this case for a ball bearing well this is what straight looks like in the real world of probability and statistics these data points just for reference are generated by a computer based on a particular wireless distribution and so these are what's called perfect random variables we know perfect wireless random variables we know they come from a wobble distribution. And then this is what straight looks like for 100 data points. And uh, I've seen some cases people say, well, you can see there's a little bit of a break on the left-hand side. That might mean this. The other thing mean, might mean that. No, it just means that uh, failure is a random process. And if you're doing wobble analysis and using wobble plotting, the more experienced you become, the more uh, comfortable you will be with uh, looking at what, uh, what makes things straight or not. So you can see here, this is what a straight line looks like in a Weibull plot. And it has a, a relatively straight line of best fit, which has a particular slope. Just so happens that the slope of that line of best fit is the shape parameter. So whenever you have a uh, data which has a model by a Weibull distribution, put in a Weibull plot like this, you will tend to see a straight line and the slope of that straight line is a shape parameter. So the compressor vein, which wears out if you have its data points, you expect its data points to create a very, very steep slope. Because remember, its shape parameter tends to be around about six. Small satellite, which tends to wear in. If you had data points from small small satellite failure, you would expect its the slope of that line of best fit to be a lot uh, shallower. And so you can tell straight away just by looking at stuff on a wobble plot uh, a lot about what's going on in your product or your system. And so we might have a good idea from lots of testing like that, uh, testing 100 ball bearings, that we have a pretty good idea that the shape parameter is 1.5. But of course, if you only had three data points, you wouldn't nearly, be nearly as confident. But let's, so if we were to uh, plot, uh, use a computer to help us create confidence regions, this is what it would look like for three, these three data points. These blue lines or blue regions here represent what the computer's telling me it thinks is uh, the, the places where the line of best fit lies in. So the most outermost, um, uh, outermost blue area represents a 90% confidence interval. The next contour, 80%, next 70%, so on and so forth. So you can see this, this uh, contour of confidence is a good way of visualizing our uncertainty. The bigger the, bigger the region, the, uh, the less certainty we have. What does that mean? Well, it just means we only have three data points. Uh, we get some information from these three data points, but it's a lot of uncertainty. It's a could be quite a kind of a big deal if you're trying to make multi-million dollar decisions about things like warranty periods, for example. Now, if I was to do the line of best fit for these three data points, yep, I would get a shape parameter estimate of about 1.29, even if, uh, if we were to somehow have the foresight or the pre-existing knowledge that no, if we were to test a million of these uh, ball bearings, the shape parameter is 1.5. We only have three because phase is a random process and these three data points are the outputs of a random process. It's going to give us an estimate of a shape parameter, which will be not as accurate as, uh, as uh, the same estimate if we had lots of data points, which is why we had, which is sort of, embedded in this idea of, un of confidence uncertainty. And so with three data points, we'll get an estimate of the shape parameter, which is not perfect by any means. It's close-ish to 1.5, it's around about 1.29. And for those of you who know what Weibull plotting is all about, we can see where our line of best fit goes through the horizontal blue line of, it, of estimation, draw a line straight down, and the best guess at the scar parameter 
this ball bearing three data points is uh, a scale parameter of about 1.47 million cycles. And so, as we all know, if we could, for the purpose of data analysis, if we could have more information, we would love that scenario. Now, as we know, we just talked about, we might have pre-existing knowledge that the ball bearing shape parameter is exactly 1.5. We might, and then what that means is that we know this data points suggesting uh, a shape parameter estimate of 1.29. We understand where that estimate comes from, but we also understand where the estimate is not particularly close to the true estimate or true value of 1.5, simply because we only have three data points. So what can we do? Well, what we can do is, in a way, rig the game. If we were to say, you know what, we're going to have a shape parameter of 1.5 no matter what, and you can see what we've done, that lock at the top left-hand corner is over the top of a line which has the beta shape parameter slope of 1.5. We can then force our poor old computer to find a line of best fit for a shape or for a line which has a slope of exactly 1.5. When we do that, we get a different estimate of the scale parameter, which in this case is 1.52 million cycles. Not a huge change, but it is, a, it is a change nonetheless. So what this data analysis starts us doing is it starts us doing, uh, so incorporating uh, pre-existing knowledge about how things fail. We say the line of best fit computer, you can't just, you, all you can do, you, you, you've lost control of the slope of the line of best fit you can come up with. All you, all you can do right now is find the, the line of best fit with a slope of 1.5 and move it to uh, essentially fit the data the best. And so we can see here that if we now have the uh, confidence region for the, the compute, confidence regions the computer came up with for our uh, scenario where we're forcing it to assume a slope of 1.5. You can see the confidence in regions are very, very, very different. You can see, yes, you have the outermost 90% confidence region and 80%, 70% and so forth. But the, conf the, the contours themselves all have the same slope. Everything has a slope of 1.5 because we told the computer that no matter what, it has to have a slope of 1.5. And so now we're starting to see what it looks like when we incorporate pre-existing knowledge. And these blue lines here represent the outermost 90% confidence regions uh, when we did simple Weibull plotting and Weibull analysis. You can see there's the, they're, they're more curvy. They extend uh, further out from the uh, confidence regions where we can constrain the slope to be 1.5. And so that additional information you can see is reducing our confidence regions. And reducing confidence regions is good. The smaller the confidence regions, the more confident you are of the line of best fit being in a, in a relatively small space. That's what you want. You want those confidence regions to get smaller. And so by adding in information that the shape parameter is exactly 1.5, you improve your confidence by making those uh, confidence regions or maybe a lack of confidence regions smaller. So that's one way of visualizing the effects of constraining shape parameter to be 1.5. Now, if we go back to simple Weibull analysis where we don't constrain the shape parameter, here is 10 data points. Um, that's in the, in the confidence regions associated with that. So the reason I'm putting this in the screen is just to compare the confidence region regions of uh, of data analysis based on 10 data points and compare that with the confidence regions of data analysis with three data points where we tell the, tell the computer the slope has to be 1.5. You could argue the confidence regions are sort of broadly similar in total area. Most importantly, uh, on the left-hand side, where you're at uh, bottom left-hand corner, which is teaches you a lot about the early failures of your component, and they're the failures you care about the most, the first five, 10% of things that fail. You can see that uh, even with 10 data points, traditional Weibull analysis, if you have no idea about the shape parameter, the confidence region is, is actually a little bit bigger on the, on the bottom left-hand corner than uh, the corresponding co confidence region 
with three data points, but you know the uh, the shape parameter. And so this is just a little little uh, revision revision of Weibull plotting and uh, uh, sort of a visual taste of what Weibull's analysis can do for you. It allows you to constrain the shape parameter if you know what the shape parameter is for your product. So where do we get that shape parameter from? Where do we get these things from? You can see that here we have a, uh, a bunch of numbers, which at least in this webinar, I'm putting to you as numbers that have been uh, gathered over the years through experience to be somehow indicative of the shape parameter of certain things and how they fail. Well, a lot of organizations use these numbers or gather these numbers to create what's called a Weibull library of shape parameters. And there's actually some libraries you can get online. You can see that means that this, an organization which has a Weibull library of these numbers just knows that, okay, a small satellite has a shape parameter of 0.4, ball bearing has a shape parameter of 1.5. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And that Weibull library then allows those uh, shape parameters to be plugged into analysis moving forward to reduce your uncertainty. So you can also get, but you can get these numbers from accelerated live testing, for example. Now, accelerated live testing is where we essentially turn up the heat or turn up the stress to try and compress ten years worth of use into hours or days or, or whatever the right acceleration factor is. Now, with accelerated live testing. We need to make sure the failure mechanism doesn't change. That is, you don't turn the heat up so much that your thing melts instead of um, degrading naturally the way it would in use conditions. You want to turn the temperature up, but not so much that the failure mechanism uh, changes. Um, when you do accelerated live testing, you will get a shape parameter that you can add to your hypothetical uh, Weibull library for your organization. And that means you can then do the analysis we looked at earlier, we constrain the, the uh, slope. Uh, a more uh, common form of information for uh, Weibull Library is existing failure data. Existing failure data is very useful for modified components or components used in new or similar environments. So that might mean that you have failure data on a ball bearing used in a particular machine on your plant um, you might have thousands of data points. You might know exactly what its shape parameter is, but you might want to use that ball bearing now in a different system. You're pretty confident that the uh, operating conditions haven't changed too much for that ball bearing. The, the temperature is roughly the same, the humidity is roughly the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in order to save testing, you might say, we're going to assume the shape parameter doesn't change too much, uh, constrain the slope of any of any Weibull analysis and only test one or two ball bearings to make sure those ball bearings as a rule are going to be uh, reliable enough in the, in the new scenario. And maybe even with those one or two failures, you might feel confident enough to uh, estimating the Weibull distribution or the reliability curve um, for, uh, for that ball bearing in that new scenario. Or let's just say you're going to look at the, the pump with the, uh, with the compressor vein. Maybe you're going to modify that compressor vein in a way that you still feel comfortable the dominant failure mechanism won't change. You might have a lot of existing failure data on that compressor vein. Um, and if you are going to modify the component, a lot of people do that to try and improve reliability. If you don't think you're changing the failure mechanism, but you're perhaps reducing the stresses, that lead to that failure mechanism rearing its ugly head, then again, you might only need to test one or two of your modified components to be reasonably confident that you have improved reliability the, uh, the, to the extent you're hoping. But again, only is true if the failure mechanism does not change. And when you do that, you get another estimate, sorry, it's another way of estimating the shape parameter uh, for how your things fail. And so for a ball bearing, you might have lots of data and you might notice that the ball bearing in your scenario has a shape parameter of 1.42. It's really, really important that even though you're listening to lunatics like me uh, who say, well, the ball bearings tend to have a shape parameter of about 1.5. If you're serious about using a Weibull library and doing analysis where you're constraining the slope, you really, really, really need 
to test your thing as a rule in your scenario with your humidity, with your stresses, with your temperature, with your usage profile to get the shape parameter for you. So in this case, maybe a ball bearing in your plant will appear to have a shape parameter of 1.42. It doesn't mean I was wrong in saying they tend to have a shape parameter of about 1.5. It's just that every ball bearing from different components, different uh, supplies used in different environments behave, su behave subtly differently. And so you need to find your shape parameter for your system's operating conditions. A lot of people are lazy. They try and do the Google search to find, oh, okay, Shape parameter is 1.5. No worries. I'll only test one or two ball bearings. Off we go. It's just a way of uh, uh, not having to do too much testing. But the reality is you risk not being able to confirm that, that shape parameter works for your scenario. Um, you might also um, then use that in another uh, similar system the way I mentioned. Once you do have that good estimate, to only, and you might only need to have one or two or test one or two to failure to estimate reliability and say, okay, this ball bearing is good to go, for example. <clears throat> and so that, in a nutshell, is why Bayes analysis, where you constrain the slope of the thing in your uh, Weibull plot, where you constrain the shape parameter of your Weibull distribution to be a certain value before you do data analysis. And the reason you want to do that is because it adds additional information and that then essentially decreases the amount of testing or amount of additional information you need to gather to make a decision. So where does the term Y Bayes come from? Well, the first hang, part of- <clears throat> Hang on a second, Chris. I got a question for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, in um, um, Sean asked the question is, where do we find these libraries? You know, and, and, and so I responded with, you know, there's an article by Andre Ferrari recently about judging those things, but he answered it almost exactly the way you did. And I want to check with you to make sure I'm right. Yeah. Is, you know, build it yourself on your product, your applications, your stresses, stuff like that. Um, second would be to go to uh, technical papers or studies that are really, really close to your circumstance. Mm -hmm. um, and then third, uh, so somebody else mentioned, well, uh, Behringer published one years ago, and I, and I remember that one. It was, I used the example of an electric motor as he said, yeah, it's like, and I don't remember the exact numbers. I don't have it in front of me, but it was electric motors. And it didn't specify, was this a small motor for a fan and an electronics box that fits on your desk? Or was this a blower <clears throat> in a big warehouse or in a wind tunnel? in yeah. different sizing of motors, different technologies of motors were all lumped into one value in the library. And it would be like 1.2, but it had the lowest ones would be 0.4 and the highest ones would be 6.8. So it wasn't all that terribly useful to know what value applies to your particular motor that you're right. interested in. Uh, so that's how I answered it. Uh, what are your thoughts on where do you find these libraries? Well, uh, on the Paul Barringer one, uh, he, he actually has a website which he either has not updated for decades or uh, it's essentially if it's, the, the, uh, the, the encryption technology is so old that only primitive versions of Internet Explorer are able to access it. So if you were to go to his is a website um, uh, you, you usually can't access it anymore. But so the, the, the first thing you mentioned there was from your own experience, Fred, absolutely concur with that. Second one was, you know, from internet sources like Paul Barringer. But the problem with Paul Barringer's and a lot of the other internet values is you have a range of 0 0.4, best guess 1.7, upper uppercase at the highest level is six. I'm going to come back to the one that one right at the end because it's a really good value, a really good value. Uh, uh, point to talk about okay so, great those people who are hanging on the answer just bear with me as i go through the taxonomy of this this word all right so why base the first the first bit of that that amalgam of words comes from Lottie weibel's last name because it's obviously predicated on the weibel distribution of course base then comes from a different dude and this comes from this guy here a guy called thomas base uh, he was essentially the, the guy who created a whole school of statistical thought. 
And so Thomas Bayes, he was a, a reverend and he published, he had a paper published after he died. So he wasn't aware of how uh, influential he became. Um, but essentially, Bay, uh, Thomas Bayes created a statistical framework that allows you to incorporate prior information, which is often information we have in our heads and our brains from years of experience. Is able to incorporate prior information with more objective uh, information from things like test data when it came to data analysis. Now, as a rule, people hate Bayesian analysis because uh, people will tell you, well, things that are subjective have to be eliminated and can't, can be, have to be excluded from, uh, uh, from data analysis, which is very short-sighted. Um, sometimes you, if you want to prove, if you're doing a, an academic study to, uh, to identify you know, if, if a drug is more effective about combating cancer than another one, yes, you might want to only have uh, uh, or eliminate subjective data. But test data, which is objective, which is very naturally appealing, is very expensive to gather. So if you know that your ball bearing has a shape parameter of about 1.5, then you'd be crazy to throw that information away and, and not combine it with objective data. But that said, a lot of people do not like the whole idea of, uh, of um, subjective data. And so people who only want objective data are what we call classical statisticians from the work from the school of classical statistics. And they're always at loggerheads with people from the, the world of Bayesian statistics where they, Bayesian statisticians want to use objective and subjective data. And in some cases, Bayesian statistics can be, can be used exclusively objectively where you have multiple sources, different sources of data that's, uh, that can be combined in a very iterative way to improve your knowledge as you go on. Now, Bayesian statistics is not, is not um, ooh, why'd that go there? Bayesian, uh, why Bayesian analysis is not from Bayesian statistics technically, the reason being is when you have a point estimate of the shape parameter, um, it sort of violates one of the premises of Bayesian statistics where you need to have a distribution that, that encompasses the uncertainty you have in things like the shape parameter. So if you don't have a distribution where, for example, you might say, my best guess at the shape parameter is 1.5, but I'm 90% confidence between one and two or what have you. And unless you do that, then technically this Y-Bayes analysis where you can strain the slope, constrain the shape parameter is not from Bayesian statistics. Now, let's go back to that question or that point that Fred raised. I'm sorry, I'm not able to easily see uh, some of the comments and questions because I'm doing this at a hotel at Albuquerque, as Fred mentioned. So I only have one screen on my laptop and it's just it's just not, not happening in terms of being able to have multiple screens so I can see all these questions coming in. So that's why it's a little bit less slick than usual. But you'll often see, if you were able to, you know, hack into Paul Barringer's website using an Internet Explorer that's 35 years old, you might get, uh, for example, like Fred said, uh, 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 shape parameter estimates for um, electric motors, which has the best guess of a 1.2, but could be as low as 0.4, could be as high as 6.0. What most people do not explain in the world of Y-based analysis is that each one of those numbers represents a different failure mechanism. So if you have an electric motor, which has a shape parameter of 0.4, what does that imply? Let me get my chat window back up. Anyway, if you have an electric motor which has a shape parameter of 0.4, what does that imply? Shape parameter is less than one. We're in. Excellent. Fantastic. If you have a, an electric motor which has a shape parameter of 1.2, is it wearing in or wearing out? Right. And so you have these sort of largely ridiculous um, ranges of shape parameters which tell you nothing because if you say, well, I have to you know, account for a uh, electric motors which have a, a shape parameter as low as 0.4, but it could be as high as 6.0, but the best guess is 1.2. What that means is that wherever the, the information that was used to create that range of data values included observing some engines that were wearing in. 
And that tells me that they observed some engines that had manufacturing defects or weren't installed properly. It also tells me they were observing engines, which in some cases, dominant failure mechanism was, was uh, similar to that compressor vein. So different, like Fred said, different electronic motors have very different ways of things, uh, ways of failing. Is it a big motor? Is it a small motor? Is it, got, uh, is it big enough to have a different type of lubrication? And so what you'll often have for things like electric motor is you might have, let's just say two or 3% of your electric motors might fail due to wear in, infant mortality. And so, yes, some some regions of your um, wiable distribution or apparent CDF curve, I should say, will have a shallow slope for those first two to three two to three percent of things that fail due to infant mortality because people didn't install the motor correctly or it has manufacturing defects before it transitions to a more consistent slope, perhaps of one point two, or for an electric motor which fails the failure mechanism similar to those on the compressor veins, the shape parameter of six point zero, and so. When you see these huge ranges, what that means is the dude or dudette who's put those numbers together has gathered information from a wide range of sources, eliminated the context and said, oh, okay, the best guess is 1.2, but it could be as low as this, could be as high as that, which goes back to how important it is for you to make sure you use shape parameters from your library, which you have built yourself. Now, a ball, uh, the ball bearing shape parameter of 1.42 it still might have you might still might have say three percent of ball bearings experiencing infant mortality which is often caused by those ball bearings when they're being installed not being aligned properly so you have greatly increased stresses which means that those two to three percent of ball bearings that weren't installed correctly will fail early but the vast majority the 97 percent will have a shape parameter of 1.5 ish or 1.42 so you'll have some which have a shape parameter of 0.4 and some which have a shape parameter of 0. Uh, sorry, 1.42. And uh, that allows you to then um, be, if you know that, then you're already a smarter reliability engineer than most. And you can then say, you know what? I will use a shape parameter of 1.5 to characterize reliability because I know that's what describes the overwhelming majority of failures in my system. But the decision I'm trying to inform is just to make sure this ball bearing is an appropriate uh, a component selection for this system, nothing too specific. So therefore I can assume a, a shape parameter of 1.42 based on existing data. I need to test one or two because all I'm trying to do is make sure this is this pull bearing can work and off you go. It will come down to your decision. So uh, was that Sean who asked that question? Um, Sean, did I come anywhere close to, uh, to addressing your concerns? Sean did have a follow-on oh. to it, and it was, um, he has a problem of insufficient data and often need to perform Y-Bay's analysis on an item with one failure or no failures. Right. And, and my thought to that was, you know, you got to be really careful with, with the failure mechanism. Um, if you're seeing, you know, really bad failure, you know, a, a completely different failure mechanism in your one sample, um, uh, and so I just jumped back on. He said, you know, could you repeat that question again? I said, I just, Sean, did, did what I say before that address your concern or address your question or part, your first part of your question at least? Well, he's finding his keyboard is the... Yeah. <laughs> did you miss what I said, Sean? Okay. All right. So it's recorded. So it's there for posterity. I can, I'm more than happy to hang around afterwards too, if we want to ch chat about it further. Um, the, the real issue here, Chris, is that, yeah, sparse data is not an excuse to make a really unfounded assumption. Right. Because if you assume that it's a Weibull or beta six and it's really not, well, you're just going to create a, a nice looking graphic that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And so it's, use all available resources to get as close to it. And what I tend to focus on is, and Chris, you mentioned part of it, there's two things. One is what's the decision you're making? 
you know, how much you need to invest to get the right decision. And then two is, well, what's the failure mechanism? So if you mm -hmm. do have one failure, well, how did it fail? And, and was your assumed values consistent with that failure mechanism? And after that, um, go, looking up a random table someplace is uh, pretty close to just rolling the dice. Right. I mean, sometimes sometimes a rough order of magnitude answer is all you need. So I'll, I'll try and uh, I'll, I'll try and I'll, I'll try and explain a scenario where it might be might be okay. But if you if you don't have a lot of data and you, you're forced to use wide bays, if 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 you're just trying to identify if a ball bearing is going to be feasible in your system and you it's replacing an other ball bearing you know is unreliable and that one data point with wide bays using a value of 1.5 you googled from the internet shows you know an order of magnitude increase in time to failure or the decision that very basic decision you're trying to inform perhaps that's okay but if you're trying to work out what the uh, the warranty reliability down to three decimal points because that's what the uh, yeah, that's what your profit margin is based on. Uh, why bays with no previous data, with no and with no reason from your own experience, your own testing, or your own field data to have a beta distribution beyond that beta value, I should say, beyond that you googled. That's just asking for disaster. Um, Greg asks when using why bays for RDT zero failure testing, the known wear out failure mechanism. No prior beta information. Is there a conservative beta that can be used, which is greater than one? I'm sorry, Greg. Not even a little bit. There's no such thing as conservative in the in the shape in the shape parameter because the shape parameter is a characteristic. Um, it, it's not it's not less than or greater than. Even though beta as a number has values which are smaller than others, it's it it essentially is the fingerprint of how your things fail. Um, so there's no such thing as a conservative fingerprint or a conservative symptom. Um, for, and with reliability demonstration testing, zero failure testing, um, you really are asking for trouble unless you are, your decision is orders of magnitude, a context where you're just trying to make sure it's something is better than a previous more un, uh, really unreliable system. That's cool. But, um, uh, and you can sometimes do zero failure testing for components of a bigger system where, you know that component's not the weakest link of your system. So for example, if you have a medical device which has a seven year service life and you're doing reliability demonstration testing using accelerated framework, uh, if a gasket is still working after 20 years of equivalent testing, it's still, it, it hasn't failed, that's a zero failure test. Um, in the context of the bigger, bigger picture where you know the medical device has other things that are gonna fail first, and that's potentially okay, but that comes down to context of the decision you're trying to inform. Um, Maximilian wrote, why Bayes uses a point estimate? If you had the distribution of beta, which is more like Bayesian, you could make a very conservative estimate of beta 90%. Yes and no. Um, the problem with that is that, especially if you're gonna have zero failure testing, so you've got a lot of, lot of not a lot of confidence, um, and you're going to have conservative distribution estimates on the uh, on beta. I can tell you right now that the confidence region you will get will be so large to be meaningless for a for a uh, decision. Uh, your your left and right boundaries of your 90% confidence interval. If you have zero failures or one failure, and you have a distribution on the beta parameter which has a very low lower limit, a very high upper limit, you, you're talking about. Uh, a data analysis, which I have to confidence regions, which is so expensive as to be, I'd argue, useless in terms of the information they present. Doesn't mean you shouldn't assume beta distribution, or beta parameters, I should say, just understand the context. Okay, Kevin wrote on Greg's question. It's not the use of a lower beta assumption. We drive the number of cycles time of the test to increase, as opposed to using a higher beta. Therefore, the term conservative is used. Now, I don't entirely follow that, but I'd just go back to my comment about it being more like a fingerprint. Okay, that's all right. 
lower beta assumption. It's essentially trying to look at it more as a fingerprint as opposed to a quantitative value um, in the whole concept of conservative fingerprint estimates just doesn't quite follow. Well, the, the same argument, Chris, applies when people are using the Arrhenius equation in accelerated testing. They say, well, I'll use the 0.9 because it's more conservative. Right. Well, no, it's a characteristic of the chemical process that you're you're exploring. And you get it. it it's not something left to doubt. Right. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And so we need a, a reasonable estimate of the actual mechanism. Mm -hmm. Lower beta, that's a greater than one, implies a wider distribution and greater uncertainty in the times to failure. I disagree with that strongly. Um, uh, so, oh, sorry, I, I see what you mean. No, I think I agree with you, Sean, in that a higher beta, say, I think you got the less than sign the wrong way around. But if you have a, a beta value of 10, for example, the times to failure will be more centrally clustered around the mean time to failure. Is that what you're talking about, Sean? If that is, I agree. Right. But that's, we want to be very careful about carpet bombing the word um, uncertainty into our conversation. A failure mechanism with a very high beta will have less uncertainty in times to failure. It's because it's describing a failure mechanism that accumulates damage in a way where that damage causes failure very, very quickly. So you'll have a lot of things working up until um, uh, up until a particular point in time before they very quickly wear out. That's okay. That's nothing wrong with that. That's just how that particular thing fails. Um, and it has a high shape parameter, which, which indicates that the way it wears out means that you have a lot less gradual uh, reaching of the threshold of critical crit criticality to, that drives failure. It just means that the way that the physical process of wear out of that device or that component means they all tend to fail at roughly the same time. So yes, there's a lot less uncertainty in terms of times to fire for those components or, or, or things that fail in that way, but that by no means is a statistical measure or, or, or a certainty or uncertainty uh, in the same context we often use in statistics. It's just that that physical process tends to uh, asymptote to a very consistent time to failure. Um, so when it comes to uncertainty and certainty and things like that, uh, we often talk about the confidence regions that I, look, I, I show in, in today's conversation. Um, confidence regions are usually regions that extend either side of something like a CDF curve or a reliability curve, which is uh, uncertainty in you having your understanding of how things fail, so which is a very different type of uncertainty. Um, so I just want to be careful with the, with the terms that we're using here. Uh, Greg writes, wrote, Greg writes, sorry, a wide distribution with a beta between one and two has an increasing hazard rate. The rate of increase is decreasing, second derivative, asymptotically approaching a constant hazard rate at infinite time. I um, I would disagree. I know what you're saying that the uh, if if a if you have a shape parameter of two, then the hazard rate increases linearly. Um, I don't. It, I, I'd be careful with it saying it asymptotically approaches the constant hazard rate at infinite time. The, when you say asymptot asymptotically approaching a constant hazard rate, that implies when you're talking about second derivatives and stuff like that, that there is a maximum value that it will then uh, uh, approach, which is not true. Yes, the rate of increase will decrease. Yep, that's what I said it. I meant it when I said it. But even though the rate of increase is decreasing, it's not going to um, it's not going to to top out at a, at a constant hazard rate per se. Um, the other thing too is when you say you have an example of a physical mechanism that produces this hazard rate failure, uh, we're often talking about fatigue is a good example. Um, and so ball bearings for, uh, which have a hazard rate, sorry not have beta value of about 1.5. Uh, they tend to fail due to spalling. Spalling is how fatigue, especially uh, particular application of fatigue in the races of ball bearing, ball bearings. And the reality is, is by the time your 
uh, has it right, even starts to think about, um, let's just say, shallowing out. Um, statistically, the number of things which are still working by that region of your hazard rate, uh, infinitesimally small for it to not be a random, a bit, not be a relevant part of the conversation. So we, we want to be, again, careful about how things behave as they extend to infinity because things have failed a long, long time before infinity comes, up, comes around. Uh, Maximilian writes, the medical device packaging is pigeonholed into making some bad assumptions with Arrhenius, as is a lot of things. Uh, we, we, we have a lot of resources on accelerated life testing. Arrhenius is a beautiful model. You just need to make sure it works for your scenario. Oh, thank you, Patricia. Much appreciated. I said, so you are now leaving the building. I, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, I think we're folks are, as you would say, Chris, spearing off. Um, uh -huh. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Max. I'm more than happy to hang around for a little bit if people have any more questions. Sean, I, uh, um, we're recording this, so uh, I did my level best at answering or addressing your, your question uh, while you either had to step away or take a phone call, your headphones weren't working. Um, so feel free to review the, the video and if that's... Uh, that still doesn't cut it, please feel free to reach out to continue the conversation. Thank you, Michael.